0: From the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. I'm Will Hitchcock, flying solo, as my co-host Siva Vadianathan, is away this week. The front line between Ukraine and Russia is on high alert tonight. At this very moment, along the border between Russia and Ukraine, armies are massing for what might be a very nasty war. Frozen solid. And according to the Ukrainian soldiers here, those Russian-backed troops fire on them almost every day. The Russian military has sent more than 100,000 troops to the border of eastern Ukraine and is threatening an invasion. Both sides are digging in. That now has the potential to trigger the biggest conflict in Europe since World War II. Putin, I think, not stop in the Ukraine. President Biden last week pleaded with Russian President Vladimir Putin in a two-hour video conversation for a de-escalation of hostilities. Good to see you again. And he promised more diplomatic efforts and multilateral talks, but meeting Putin's demands to preserve Russia's influence in Eastern Europe will be a tall order. Today the volatile situation elsewhere in countries that once lay behind the iron curtain. Polish riot police fired tear gas. The fallout of the Cold War continues to play itself out. Pelted with stones, and it seems that not only is democracy in danger in this part of the world, but so is peace and security. The is accused of facilitating and orchestrating this crisis. So, for the last installment in our miniseries on global hotspots, we are headed back to Eastern Europe to sort through these complicated threats. And we're fortunate to have with us two distinguished public servants with extensive experience in the region. Heather Conley directs the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies. And she's the incoming president of the German Marshall Fund which is a think tank that focuses on transatlantic security. Heather began her career at the State Department, where in the early 1990s, she helped coordinate assistance to the newly independent states of the former Soviet Union. Heather, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
1: Great to be with you.
0: And we have here in the studio with us Stephen Mull, the University of Virginia's Vice Provost for Global Affairs. Steve has had a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Foreign Service, including two appointments as ambassador to Lithuania from 2003 to 2006 and to Poland from 2012 to 2015. Steve, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Good afternoon. All right, well, let's jump into the real hotspot here. Let's start with Ukraine, where tensions have reached a a very dangerous state. Now, we have talked about uh, Ukraine on our show before and its path to democracy. It hasn't been easy, and there's been some progress and then some, some falling back. But it has shown promise, even in the face of Russian aggression. Now, Many in the U.S., I guess including me, see Ukraine as a kind of plucky democracy holding out against Russian pressure. But I'm sure Putin's government sees the situation very differently. Heather, let me turn to you first. Help us understand what is Russia's narrative on this and why does Ukrainian freedom and democracy pose such a threat to Putin?
1: Well, well, that's a great question. And thankfully, uh, Vladimir Putin just answered that this week in an interview that he gave. Uh, December 26th is the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I, I think we have to take a step back here and put this into historical context. Putin said that the collapse of the Soviet Union, we know he's told us this is the greatest geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. But he said that the collapse was the demise of a historic Russia. In June of this year, he also wrote a very strange and disturbing essay uh, telling us that the Ukrainian people are not a separate people. They are one people with Russia. He's even said as early as 2008 that. Ukraine isn't a sovereign country. So what this is about, I think, is Ukraine in the minds of Vladimir Putin and his inner circle in the Kremlin is absolutely essential for a new history for Russia. Russia can't exist with Ukraine not being part of its sphere of influence, its historical experience. So what we see here in the annexation of Crimea in 2014, its support of pro-separatists in Luhansk and Donetsk, the Donbass region, it is trying to ensure that Ukraine remains within its sphere of influence. The problem is, as you noted, that plucky Ukraine, uh, despite incredible internal challenges, political and economic challenges keeps wanting to assert that it is a sovereign country and it has the right to choose its alliances, its perspectives, its economic relations, its political relations. And so this is the contest that we're uh, seeing. Is the international system one of going back to spheres of influence where the strong control, the weaker or the smaller? Or is this an international system that we created after the end of the Second World War, which allows countries to choose their alliance, that they have that freedom? freedom and this is what this is all about will we give into the spheres of influence to allow you know a more accommodative approach to russia or will the west defend those principles and that's what's at stake right now
0: Steve it sounds complicated but it also sounds like there's a lot of local history a lot of enmity a lot of ethnic identity politics disputes over borders. And I'm just wondering, let me throw it out there. What's the United States' stake in any of this? It sounds like, you know, these folks are going to be arguing about who's Ukrainian, who's Russian, where the borders should be, no matter what. What is America's national interest, if any, in that conflict?
2: Uh, It's a great question, Will. Uh, It's one, actually, that former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson asked uh, of his European counterparts uh, at a meeting, one of his early meetings there. Why should American taxpayers care about uh, Ukraine? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. Really, since the end of World War II, the United States has pursued a a Europe that's whole, free, and democratic, uh, and uh, at peace uh, with, uh, certainly with us and with each other. And that came out of some very painful experiences for the United States in the 20th century. More than a million Americans either died or were injured in various European conflicts because we didn't do enough to prevent war from breaking out in Europe. So that's a lesson that's been very hard learned. Key to keeping Europe at peace, really not just Europe, anywhere in the world, is in preserving the sanctity of borders. And back in 1975, at the height of the Cold War, East and West agreed through the Helsinki process that all of the borders as then existed uh, in Europe were permanent and would be respected. So Russia became the first established European power to violate that by lopping off a piece of Ukraine, taking Crimea back in uh, March of 2004, and invading the eastern part of Ukraine. So letting that go unchallenged has significant implications for how reliable will the United States be as a a respecter and guarantor of borders uh, in Europe. And if it's allowed to happen further, it will start to corrode American influence. It'll start to corrode uh, the American alliance system in Europe, which is one of our strongest uh, national security assets that we have. So it's important for the United States. That said, I think President Biden's been clear on this. It's not so important that the United States would go to war over Ukraine. I think he's been quite clear that the United States is not going to send U.S. soldiers to fight a war for uh, Ukrainian independence, but we'll defend it through other means. Okay,
0: Steve. So if we've ruled out war with Russia, what tools does the United States have to pressure and deter Russia from doing what it wants, which is seizing Ukraine again?
2: Well, they're primarily economic in nature. The United States certainly isn't shy about using sanctions uh, in advancing its foreign policy interests. And given our centrality in the world financial system, those are particularly effective steps that the United States can use. And as President Biden and Secretary Blinken have both said, if Russia moves to invade Ukraine, basically they ain't seen nothing yet. They were quite explicit in saying that the United States will apply a new level of sanction that had not been used before. And uh, they could be used specifically to target the oligarchs that are so central to Putin's hold on power to make their continued loyalty to him come under some pressure and get them to start thinking about alternatives. So I think, at least on the U.S. side, there's confidence that that kind of threat people sit up and take notice of. Uh, NATO officials, uh, EU officials have all been united in saying that Russia will pay a very serious price. I think that has to be one of the principal potential sources of leverage. And it seems that based on the conversations we've had, at least with the outgoing German government, that the Germans would be open to putting the brakes on the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, It's not complete yet. There's not gas going through it yet. So all of these are significant sources of pressure short of military action.
0: Heather, you said that spheres of influence politics are bad, dangerous. We don't like that kind of thing. We feel states should choose their own path in the world. But let me just make the the argument here that in some ways, the United States, perhaps when the Cold War ended, felt that it now had gained new influence, maybe a sphere of influence even, in those countries that were on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and that now could be brought into a closer alliance with the United States and with the European Union. So the United States policy was to push pretty aggressively for the expansion of a military alliance, NATO, into Eastern Europe, and to encourage the European Union to bring in some of these former communist states into the EU. To some people, that might look a little bit like America was exercising a kind of sphere of influence policy, pushing its influence further into Eastern Europe. I guess where I'm going with this is, is it reasonable to say that the United States might have provoked... Russia, might have gone too far in pushing its interests into what Russians still felt was their backyard. Maybe this is a clash of visions of how the international order should work. But I'd love to know how you deal with that argument, that really America is the provocative revisionist power here.
1: Well, you certainly hear that type of comment emanating from Moscow quite a bit. This is all of your fault. And I I'm going to come back to that. But to connect both of these questions. What the Kremlin is trying to do is rewrite that post-Cold War legal framework, the Paris Charter, which you know established that we respected the new bounds after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, I think the goal here is to rewrite and to return back to those spheres of influence. So, so let's talk about NATO and EU enlargement. It's also important to note that at one point, President Putin in the early 2000s had mused about Russia because... A member of NATO. So I think we have to, again, go back to this understanding. We were trying to create a new framework for European security that would not be this destabilizing. And I think Russia was going along with that vision, or, you know, some in Russia would say that they were too weak to fight that vision. But it really wasn't until 2008, uh, or you can even go back before 2007, when Vladimir Putin gave a historic speech at the Munich Security Conference where he basically said, okay, we've Tried this. We've tried to be sort of this normal power, and it's not working for us. We're stronger now. And so, this is when we saw a modernization of the Russian military, the invasion of the Republic of Georgia, and the effective occupation and annexation of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. You saw the violations of major treaties like the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And then, of course, the ultimate was the annexation and invasion of eastern Ukraine. So, the reason that there are four NATO battalions uh, sitting in the three Baltic states and Poland is not because NATO wanted to put forces there. It was responding to Russian aggression. In Ukraine's treaty, they were neutral. They prohibited them from joining NATO. They were trying to seek an economic relationship with the European Union, a trade relationship. And even that was too much. the kremlin Um, what the kremlin fears is democracies and modern economies on their borders because if the ukrainian people can be democratic and have a different orientation why can't the russian people because that's forbidden change any political change is not allowed in russia my view uh, and i was part of the historic nato enlargement that brought in the baltic states and uh, slovakia romania bulgaria and slovenia in some ways We prepared for this day by advancing security and prosperity to 100 million more people in Europe We have created a stronger alliance that is not going to war because of Russia. Poland and the Baltic states feel reassured that NATO is there, uh, strong deterrence, but also open to dialogue. I think it's prevented conflict. And we should not apologize for that policy. So I, I think we should feel that this is a process that has brought freedom and prosperity. But it's something that is costly. We have to defend those freedoms as they are challenged increasingly on NATO's eastern flank.
0: As a historian, I, I can imagine how we're going to keep coming back to this question of clashing narratives and how difficult it is to, to resolve them when people have dug in. Well, Steve, let me let me take us. Um to yet another hotspot in this uh, neighborhood, which is a particularly dangerous one, and, and that is Belarus. I'm sure as a U.S. ambassador to Poland and Lithuania, you became very familiar with Belarus since it shares a border with those countries. Now, Belarus is a puzzle, especially since we've seen a wave of you know, democratization uh, and modernization take place Generally speaking, the narrative has been pretty positive in that regard in Eastern Europe, but not so much in Belarus. Since the early 90s, it's been ruled by Alexander Lukashenko. Some people call him Europe's last dictator, but I don't think he's quite the last one. But he's a brutal thug. He has ruled for almost three decades. The most recent round of elections, the 2020 elections, were clearly rigged, and there was a significant outburst of protests in the street against Lukashenko following those elections. So far, he has hung on to power. How has he done it? What makes him distinct? What's his story?
2: Well, it's a a pretty traditional Stalinist playbook. Joseph Stalin would be very proud to see uh, what his ideological descendant is up to in Belarus. It's not rocket science here. Uh, The the press is heavily censored. All of the media just promotes uh, Lukashenko's authoritarian grip on the the country. He brutally persecutes uh, any opposition. He arrests people. He throws them in jail. People have died. Uh, He tortures people. This is all backed up by uh, a very very strong, well-organized, and well-financed uh, security service, uh, secret police that all of us who followed uh, the Soviet world uh, during the Cold War became very familiar with. Uh, he's had his ups and downs with Russia, with Putin. Uh, but generally speaking, when he feels threatened, Putin has his uh, back. And when the uh, the elections last August uh, in 2020 uh, indicated that the opposition might have won, Lukashenko ruthlessly cracked down, uh, ended up driving either arresting or driving out of the country those few people who were opposing him. And Putin immediately stepped in to offer additional law enforcement uh, support. Uh, he also has helped uh, in that Belarus uh, is a relatively small country only about 10 million people live there it's relatively disconnected from the West uh, unlike uh, Ukraine which has growing uh, Western connections a civil society has traditionally been very weak uh, in contrast to Ukraine and certainly in Central and Eastern Europe uh, the solidarity movement was nothing like that in Belarus and so he he gets away with it there's a very little Uh, price uh, that he pays. The West did respond to the stolen elections last year uh, with a wave of new sanctions there are indications that that maybe has put a dent of 2 or 3% into Belarus's uh, GDP, but not enough yet to have Lukashenko turn away from this path of repression. So I think he's probably there uh, for the foreseeable future. The opposition has done heroic work. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who fled a certain arrests and is operating, you know, not a professional politician by any means, but she really united the opposition behind her, even in exile. So, it's clear that there's growing dissatisfaction i think we have an obligation to support them any way we we can going to war is not an option there either just as it isn't in in, um, in ukraine but they're 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 brave people who deserve better than they have
0: do we know how close uh, he came to fleeing the country or losing power in that period after the the elections and there there was a, a few weeks there where things looked a little bit he looked a little shaky didn't he
2: Uh, Yes, uh, it's true. And uh, there was the example back in uh, 2014 in in Ukraine when Yanukovych ended up uh, quickly fleeing away into a life of luxury somewhere in Russia today. And uh, I suspect that might have crossed his mind for a while. But I think he came under some pressure from Putin, who didn't want a vacuum in uh, in Belarus, uh, and
0: that the Russians uh, persuaded him to stick it out and that they would help him with that. Well, Heather, Belarus has recently been trying to manufacture a humanitarian crisis by luring migrants from the Middle East, mainly, it seems, Iraq and, and Kurdistan, and then bussing them to the border with Poland and Lithuania and essentially pushing them or forcing them to try to cross the border. What is Lukashenko trying to accomplish here? and And how have Polish authorities uh, responded to this? What's going on?
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, what uh, Lukashenko wanted to do was first punish the European Union for placing sanctions against it after not only the the failed election, but their incredibly repressive tactics uh, used on the opposition. In fact, you know, the the very dramatic, uh, they they turned around an aircraft um, that had a blogger uh, and arrested him. I mean, so these were pretty extraordinary measures. So how does one punish Europe? Well, you identify its greatest political weakness and crisis, and that's migration. And in some ways, Belarus was inspired by what Russia did in 2015, 2016. They also, I mean, in the case of the Russian-Norwegian border, gave migrants living in Russia bicycles so they could bike over the border. They pushed them across in Finland. Why? Because this is incredibly divisive in, in Western societies. And this was a way to try to break unity within the EU and apply enormous pressure on the two countries that were being so supportive of the Belarusian opposition, uh, Lithuania and Poland in particular. It did not work. Uh, You saw where there was very quick mobilization in both Lithuania and Poland. A very strong EU support. Now, there's a big difference, though, with how Lithuania handled this crisis and how Poland handled this crisis. Lithuania, huge transparency, invited the media, um, uh, humanitarian officials, so that they could see what the Belarusian regime was doing it, with this weaponization of these migrants who were brought there and literally pushed over the border by Belarusian security officials. Poland took a very different approach, and I think uh, that approach rightly uh, and continues to be strongly criticized. They were not transparent at the border. They prohibited journalists. They prohibited humanitarian workers. Uh, any visibility into what was happening along that border. What was the reasons? I can I can speculate. I think they did not want transparency into what was happening, which the uh, Polish security officials were pushing those migrants back. They were death. Uh, Children are freezing to death in the forest, in the neverland between these two, as literally security forces are pushing them back and forth, back and forth on the border. I think this was also extremely sensitive for a Polish government that's already under siege for a variety of issues, judicial reform, a very active opposition. And they had presented themselves as the best government at handling migration, refusing to accept any EU migrants from the migration crisis in 2015 and 2016. So two very impacted countries, but had a very different response to that border problem. But as I said, overall, the EU showed great solidarity. They identified what was happening. And thankfully, that solidarity made Lukashenko step back. He's now had to remove some of these migrants. They're still there. There's still people trapped. It's still a a horrific humanitarian crisis. But it was that solidarity that helped. The transparency that Poland did not implement, I think, uh, eroded what was an enormous amount of support for Poland and sympathy for what was happening.
0: Well, Steve, this gives us a chance to talk a little bit more about Poland and what it has been going through in the last couple of decades. Um, I teach the Cold War history class and love dwelling on the rise of solidarity and the trade union movement against all odds. Uh, They fought for the right to organize and then they fought for the right to free elections and it took them a decade and at various points they had to go underground and they were persecuted by the military government. But as we like to say, they helped bring democracy not just to Poland, but they certainly helped roll back communism in Eastern Europe. Uh, If ever there was a plucky democracy, we like to point to it's Poland. And yet there has been backsliding uh, in Poland, at least that's how we see it in the U.S., on a range of issues. And of course, the Poles are entitled to run their country the way they want to run it, but things are getting a little ugly there. And I just wondered if you could try to situate Uh, what's happening in Polish politics in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, the rise of the Law and Justice Party and its political views, its values, its ambitions. What's going on there that, that Americans should know about?
2: Well, personally, it's hard for me not to be uh, sad about what's going on in Poland, what has been going on in Poland over the past several years. I spent fully one quarter of my 36 years in the Foreign Service in assignments in Poland uh, during communist times, in the immediate uh, democratic period in the 1990s, and then back uh, as ambassador a few years ago. And Polish Democrats uh, did a remarkable job in creating a success story, an economy that grew, was the fastest growing economy in Europe for very many years, uh, became such a steadfast ally of the United States. Uh, now, as happened in so many countries around the world, not just uh, Poland, uh, also here in our own country, as globalization took hold, societies began changing a lot more quickly, economies began transforming a lot more quickly, a significant group of people were left behind in that transformation of those countries. And the Law and Justice Party, which now has been governing Poland since 2015, uh, proved remarkable remarkably adept at creating itself as a party of grievance uh, in mobilizing people who were very resentful of those changes very skilled at using uh, social media. And they basically were really skilled at promoting narratives that would enhance that sense of grievance. They spread many stories, some of which uh, we'd recognize ourselves uh, here in the United States, things that are just blatantly untrue and, uh, and very provocative. Uh, for many years, they claimed that the previous government conspired with uh, the Russians to murder Lech Kaczynski, the former president of Poland in the airline crash uh, back in uh, into. 2010 that nearly wiped out uh, the whole government. Uh, They demonize uh, minorities, migrants, sexual minorities, uh, just targeting minorities and creating a sense that all of these minorities were somehow conspiring against the Catholic Church, against uh, a sense of of Polish uh, nationalism. And uh, it was a very successful political formula that launched them into power. They've been there for six years now, and uh, they've paired that with very generous, social welfare programs that help poorer people. Poland is a largely rural country. Uh, Still, people who lived in the countryside didn't benefit so well from all the changes that took place. And so they're rewarding that base and mobilizing them even more. So as they took power, uh, Jaroslaw Kaczynski, the leader of the party, uh, said that he wanted to create a new elite uh, in Poland. And he's gone about doing that by claiming that Poland more than 30 years after the end of communism is still controlled by communists at uh, the top levels. Uh, he's had a major purge of the uh, court system, packing uh, the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Tribunal, firing uh, thousands of people in the military, senior military officers in the intelligence agencies, uh, in the uh, diplomatic corps, wiping out uh, state-funded media any voice of independence and replacing all the editors and journalists with uh, propagandists uh, uh, for what law and justice interests are. Uh, they dredge up resentment against the Germans, uh, demanding reparations for World War II, even though the West Germans had paid reparation 50 years ago, uh, raising that up. Today or last week, they were uh, outside the German embassy comparing the incoming government, uh, new government of Germany to Nazis, that they were trying to steal Poland's patrimony from it. And it even reached this uh, Uh, crescendo in December, a leading member of the Law and Justice Party started a social media campaign accusing Joe Biden of stealing the election, basically repeating the same lies that former President Trump was repeating. They had a picture on Twitter of uh, Joe Biden visiting his son in the cemetery and the Polish political leader put a caption. Here's Joe Biden thanking all of his political supporters who stole the election for him. I just I I couldn't believe it. (laughs) The United States is Poland's security guarantor. Uh, Joe Biden has been an incredible friend of Poland over the years. And to attack somebody who's been your friend uh, just shows how insidious uh, this kind
0: of tactic has become. You know, uh, for both of you, uh, a good Uh, point of comparison might be Hungary, and this will be the last hotspot that we look at. Uh, This is also an example, I think, of how anti-democratic politics in Europe have gained uh, a pretty secure foothold in some uh, some quarters. The hardline right-wing prime minister, Viktor Orban, who we've talked about on this show from time to time, he's dominated Hungarian politics since 2010, active even long before that. And he cemented power through various changes in electoral laws and putting in loyalists into the media and so forth. And what's interesting, and to pick up on your observation about Poland, Steve, is that Orban has also won some support in the United States in at least one prominent media figure. Fox News host Tucker Carlson recently broadcast from Budapest for a whole week this past summer. Uh, And he talked about Orban's policies and his his style with great uh, reverence and admiration and indeed highlighted his immigration policies and suggested that maybe Hungary could teach American politics something. And he praised him for sort of rejecting the liberal mainstream of the European Union. This is a fascinating moment, Steve, when European and American politics mesh, but not in the way that we normally would like. How is this happening? I guess, what are the implications for the United States and our democracy of this backsliding in Europe?
2: Well, uh, you raise a great point, Will. The United States, since uh, going back to the Second World War, as I I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we've invested billions of dollars and and, uh, thousands, millions of hours uh, of diplomatic work and military work promoting uh, the growth of democracy in Europe. And that's paid huge dividends for the United States over the year. Europe has uh, blossomed into an incredibly wealthy partner for the United States, an incredibly influential partner the transatlantic bond has made huge difference in lives on both sides of the Atlantic. And the roots of that success, our democratic success, are, are very much at, at risk right now. Last time I was in, in Poland, I, I just when I turned on state TV, I thought I was back in Poland in communist times. It's this very heavy-handed, uh, clearly propagandistic uh, approach to the, the news that Orban excels at. And so here are the same tactics that we fought against during the Cold War, uh, the squelching of individual initiative, the squelching of individual freedom, the curtailment of personal liberty that is the secret of our success. And Orban is is in fact using these Soviet tactics to bring back uh, these same practices that are going to hurt us, that are going to hurt the transatlantic community. And it's a challenge for us. And it's one that Successive governments in the United States don't really know how to handle You can't kick anybody out of NATO. Maybe you can, but it hasn't been tried. It's very difficult to kick people out of the European Union as uh, as uh, as well. So the United States has a challenge on its hand. I know the current Biden administration, the Summit for Democracy that happened last week, is uh, certainly trying to mass efforts to uh, stop uh, this negative process. But we have huge interests in, in stopping
0: it. Heather, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Orban and his style and his the threat that he poses. But I'm just thinking, I don't think during the Cold War, a prominent American news anchor praised the Soviet Union or any of its Warsaw Pact allies. So this echo between Parties of the right in Europe and in the United States is really interesting because they're both, in a sense, learning from each other, testing ideas, tactics, strategies to demonize certain quarters, as you talked about in the Belarus case, to exploit the politics of immigration and ethnicity. I find that worrisome because, of course, the the United States, you know, that's something new that wasn't common back in the Cold War.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, that sort of bringing the three threads together of of Russia, Poland, and Hungary, um, all three are attempting to rewrite their history based on grievance. So if we talked about Russia. Poland under uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski is trying to very similarly rewrite Polish history uh, in part how he was treated at the Solidarity Roundtable, but he's attempting uh, through grievance um, to rewrite that Polish history. And in some ways the Polish government is serving as a sort of a model of nationalistic socialism ultra-nationalistic, while extremely distributive of of its wealth. Hungary, Viktor Orban has been doing the exact same thing, trying to, in some ways, in a modern 21st century way, create a greater Hungary uh, and reassert Hungarian greatness. Now, what these three governments have in common is that they're using this veneer to remain in power. This is about survivability, uh, because they know after a certain point, and this is Mr. Orban, because of the corruption of his government, you either stay in power or in Poland and Hungary's circumstance, you may end up in jail if you fall out of power. So this becomes very existential. To to mask this need to retain power, um, you can wrap it in a lot of things, fear of the other. So for Russia, it's fear of NATO. For Poland, it is fear of changing cultural attitudes. As Steve said, this is the decadence of the West. By the way, this is exactly Russia's theme. This is the the social agenda that's being forced upon these countries by the European Union, by a a decadent progressive United States. We have to save our identity, our our Christian values, our traditional ways and, and beliefs. And that's what Viktor Orban has done. He's really skillfully used all of these fears to mask corruption and staying in power. And so what makes this so disconcerting, Will, to your point, why are so many political leaders and parties, why do they admire this? Because it's about power, of course, keeping uh, the, the the riches of power, keeping the you know in some ways the corruption of that power, um, but they have to place it in a veneer of fear, um, and 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 be, and this is I think the reflection for me in our, our U.S. election. It is no longer about two political parties fighting about ideas. It is two political parties fighting literally to the death because they feel it is existential. If their side doesn't win, they will be eliminated by the other side. So that's why there's such an admiration club for tactics and tools. But here's the good news. Uh, the international movement of these ultra-nationalists aren't successful. Why? Because it's really hard to collaborate when you're so ultra-nationalistic about yourself. You can't agree. So Poland is anti-Russian. Mr. Orban is very pro-Russian. That's not a good you know, place to, to begin to compare notes.
0: Well, Steve Moe, Heather Conley, when I hear words like grievance, nationalism, revision of borders, the decadence of the West, As a student of European 20th century politics, especially the interwar period, I get very, very nervous. And of course, that's what we do here on Democracy in Danger. We leave people thinking, worrying a little bit, but maybe hoping for policies that can lead us out of this difficulty. Thank you both so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Mull is the vice provost for global affairs at the University of Virginia and a former U.S. ambassador to Poland and, earlier, to Lithuania. Heather Conley is the incoming president of the German Marshall Fund and a frequent commentator on foreign policy for CNN, the BBC, and NPR. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. Here's a quick message from our friends. Hi, I'm Ellie Bashkow an intern here on Democracy in Danger. We wanted to let you know about a podcast we've been listening to from Foreign Policy Magazine. It's called Ones and Twos. Economic historian Adam Twos is like an encyclopedia about basically everything uh, from the COVID shutdown to climate change and pasta sauce. On Ones and Twos, he joins FP editor Cameron Abadi, and together they unpack two numbers, one from the news and the other something fascinating. Find Ones and Twos, that's T-O-O-Z-E, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for today's show and for season three of Democracy in Danger. Siva will be back with me just after the winter break, along with two of our favorite regulars, Nikki Hemmer and Jamel Bowie, for a special episode to mark a, well, less than joyous anniversary.
1: As White House Chief of Staff, Mr. Meadows played a role in or was witness to key events leading up to and including the January 6th assault on the United States Capitol. Don't let
0: In the meantime, we'll drop some past episodes in your feed. Catch up on anything you missed and stay in touch. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. And visit dindanger.org for much more, including a sneak peek at what's coming up in Season 4. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We are distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. Have a joyous holiday, and please keep doing your part to save democracy.